Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I've always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. In 2021, we saw an aggressive push to restrict voting rights in state legislatures all across the country. According to the Brennan Center, between January 1 and December 7th, at least 19 states passed 34 laws restricting access to voting and more than 440 bills designed to restrict voting were introduced in 49 states. In response, last week, the House Democrats joined together to pass the Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act to ensure every American has an equal voice in our democracy. But the work is far from done. That's why for this edition of Clyburn Chronicles, I'm pleased to welcome my friend, Sherlyn Eiffel, the President and Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund to discuss the most fundamental right in our democracy, the right to vote. A little background on Sherilyn. Sherilyn Eiffel began her work with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund in 1988, litigating landmark cases like Houston Lawyers Association versus Attorney General of Texas. She co-founded one of the first legal clinics in the nation dedicated to eliminating the legal barriers placed on recently released offenders looking to re-enter society. Then in 2012, Sherilyn was chosen as president and the director counsel for the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. She's led the litigation proceedings for numerous influential cases like Shelby County v. Holder and Fisher v. University of Texas back in 2016. Now, in 2020, she was appointed president by President Biden to the commission on the Supreme Court. Sherilyn and I have worked very closely together uh, over my years here in the Congress, not just on voting issues, but 
all kinds of issues uh, affecting what I like to call equity uh, in our system, or maybe the lack thereof. Uh, in full disclosure, uh, she has announced her retirement. I don't know why anybody as young as she is will retire, but I suspect that she's just uh, going to change directions, take a little time off, and I expect to hear from her uh, doing whatever it is uh, that she cares to do going forward, which I know will be another chapter in her very distinguished legal career. Thank you so much for agreeing, agreeing to be with us here today. Thank you, Congressman Clyburn. I'm honored to be here and no, I am not retiring. I am stepping down from leading the Legal Defense Fund, but I'll be looking for the next way to make a contribution to this work that has been my life's work. And as you know, uh, there's much work yet to be done. Absolutely. If we did not know it uh, before Shelby B. Holder, we know it now. Yeah. You know, uh, a little earlier today, uh, the Congressional Black Caucus had a press conference. And at that press conference, uh, uh, the chair of the caucus, Joyce Beatty, uh, called on me to make a statement. And in making my statement, I talked first about Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham City Jail, a letter that I reread every year around this time. A letter which I quote very often, and I quoted it today. Uh, many of my listeners here have heard me talk about that letter, and they know that I have always given a little background as to why King wrote that letter. He wrote it to answer a letter that he had received from eight white clergymen down in Birmingham, Alabama who asked him to leave Birmingham. They wrote uh, this letter, I think they call it uh, uh, out of concern and caution. And they said to him, in so many words, we think your cause is right. Your timing is wrong. And King answered them dealing with the notion of time. He wrote to them, the time is neutral. Time can be used constructively or destructively. And then he said to them that he was coming to the conclusion that the people of ill will in our society make a much better use of time than the people of goodwill. Mm -hmm. And that we are going to be made to repent, not just for the vitriolic words and deeds of bad people, but for the appalling silence of good people. Our vote is our voice. If you silence my voice, if you take away my vote, you will silence me. Now, I concluded my statement today with um, a little thing that I know uh, you are fond of, and it was from um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in writing her dissent in Shelby Beholder. And she said in her dissent, 
taking away preclearance, which is what the Supreme Court did nine years ago, taking away preclearance is like taking away the umbrella because it's keeping you dry from the rain. Well, the Supreme Court, the court took away the umbrella. And all over the country, in 19 states, it is raining on the right to vote. And you have been a champion for this. And I would like to, for you to share with my listeners uh, your feeling about what's going on, on the, here in the Congress today, and a little bit about Shelby V. Holder and why it is necessary for us to do what we're doing in light of Justice Roberts' invitation for us to fix the formula. Yeah, that's incredibly uh, moving to put those all together. You know, the Shelby Beholder decision, June 2013, um, really opened a new chapter in American democracy. And it has weakened us um, incredibly. And you point out the voter suppression laws have happened just over the last year. But as you remember, in 2013, within hours of the decision being announced, hours, um, you know, Texas was preparing to pass its new voter ID law that the, 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 the strictest one in the country that let you use your uh, concealed gun carry permit as an ID, but, but not your student uh, ID or your tribal ID. The Secretary of State of Florida said, we're free and clear now. I mean, there was an exultation in states that had been subject to preclearance. And the purpose of preclearance was to avoid precisely the kind of unraveling of our democracy that we have seen since then. It was designed to ensure that we could get at discriminatory election schemes and stop them from going into effect before they happen. Because we of course challenged Texas's voter ID law, but that case wasn't settled until 2018. And over the course of that four years, hundreds of members of the assembly were elected district attorneys across the country, judges, school boards, the railroad commissioner, the public safety commissioner, those elections went forward with that restrictive ID requirement until we could come to a resolution in litigation. Section five preclearance was meant to avoid that, to stop and require a federal authority to review and assess the voting change that was planned to determine whether it would discriminate against black and brown or, or Asian American or Native American voters. None of these voting suppression laws that we've seen in Georgia, Texas, Florida, and we're litigating all of them, would have gone into effect had preclearance been around. They would have been sent to uh, the attorney general, there would have been an assessment, and it would have been clear that these laws have a negative effect on black participation in the electoral process. The only reason they can go into effect is because the Supreme Court um, under Chief Justice Roberts removed that preclearance requirement. And I've never forgotten, I talk about it often, Congressman, what, what the Senate said when they passed the section five provisions in the Voting Rights Act. If you read the Senate report, they said that the purpose of it was to get at not only present day discrimination, but what they called 
the ingenious methods that might be adopted in the future, which is to say they knew what was going to happen. Absolutely. They understood that uh, Southern states were going to continue to try to engage in voter suppression and that they could not anticipate, right? At that time, there wasn't voter ID laws, right? At that time, it wasn't about purging the rolls. At that time, it was, these are the new, ingenious, even they hadn't thought of you can't give people water when they stand in line to vote, right? They knew that there would be new and ingenious methods. And that's what Section 5 was meant to capture. And that protection, as Justice Ginsburg talked about it, was just taken away from us. And what we have seen since June 2013 is this unraveling. Now, it is true. It has accelerated since the 2020 election. Because what we saw in 20, what we see in 2021 with these voter suppression laws are designed to ensure that what happened in 2020, which was this mass mobilization of black voters throughout the country, so mobilized that not only did they come out for the general election, but 92% of the black Georgians who voted in the November 2020 election came back weeks later to vote in the special election, voting for the first time uh, for uh, a black senator since reconstruction and only the second time a Jewish statewide officer. That was the result of that massive mobilization of, of black voters around the country. And the 2021 voter suppression laws we're seeing are designed precisely to make sure that that mobilization and its outcome cannot happen again. Absolutely, and you know, um, we, when you look at what we're trying to do here uh, with the John R. Lewis, uh, uh, Voting Rights Act and uh, the so-called freedom to vote. We've combined both of those things um, because the Supreme Court, we focus on Shelby v. Holder uh, because of the pre-clearance. But the Supreme Court has visited the Voting Rights Act since then. Oh, yes, they have. Um, in Section 2, uh, when, when the Voting Rights Act was first passed back in 1965, you, you remember, I think there's the big case back then. I, you know, I'm not a lawyer or anything, but I just kind of- Really you are. I watch TV shows. Um, and back then, it was coming out of Mobile. Mobile uh, Bolden, 1980. Mm -hmm. Mobile. Yeah, you remember? Mm -hmm. uh, they had a three-member uh, council Commission. or something. Yes, yes. Running everything, everybody voting at large. Mm -hmm. And then the Supreme Court said at that time, well, uh, you got to show intent. Mm -hmm. If you can't show that they intended for things to be this way or for mm -hmm. results to come out this way, uh, then uh, you can do it. Now the Congress stepped in. And when they reauthorized the Voting Rights Act, it dealt, it put in place what we call, uh, I guess you call it a results test. The results test, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. so. Um, now, both those things are at play here because redistricting and all that stuff, uh, and it's kind of, uh, I, I want to get into this today because I think that the media uh, have been dealing with this one part of this, mm -hmm. and you and I are more interested in both parts of this. <laughs> and so, uh, talk about that just a little bit. Yeah, so I mean, if, 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 if Shelby County wasn't bad enough, remember in the Shelby County decision, one of the things Justice Roberts said in the opinion was, you know, this is about Section 5 and the preclearance regime. You still have Section 2, which is 
uh, the tool that we use mostly to litigate, and that's that results test that came from Congress's 1982 amendments to the Voting Rights Act. And when Congress amended the Voting Rights Act, they also set forth the test that would be used to litigate those cases called the totality of circumstances test. And the, and the Senate laid out a series of factors, which became known as the Senate factors, for how you would interpret a particular voting provision and whether or not it violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. In Brnovich versus Democratic Party of Arizona last summer, Justice Roberts gave the pen to, of all people, Justice Alito to write the majority opinion in that case. And in that case, Justice Alito essentially rewrote the test that Congress had written. Now, here is a Supreme Court that is supposed to be a conservative Supreme Court, and that is um, that cares about textualism and the text of the statutes and, and, and completely unmoored from the text. The majority writes a new test um, and also gives a kind of a, uh, an approval to the false claim of, 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 of uh, voter fraud as a justification for uh, being able to, to pass uh, voter suppression laws. Bernovich is a really trying case and we're still litigating cases under section two. We think there are ways around it. We think there are parts of it that are not prescriptive. It is, it is a demonstration of the full intent of the Supreme Court with regard to the Voting Rights Act. And so it is incumbent upon Congress to do just what they did in 1982, as you point out, Mobile versus Bolden, bad Supreme Court decision uh, that failed to recognize the intent of Congress in the original 65 Act. Congress comes back in 1982 and amends the Voting Rights Act. Bad decision in 2013, we couldn't even get a hearing, as you know, to amend the Voting Rights Act or to even talk about the Shelby County decision uh, after the, the uh, 2013 uh, decision in the in the in the Senate, we had some hearings in the House, and then we get Bernovich. And obviously, the job now is up to Congress. And it's important that we moor this this conversation and anchor it in in something that you talk about very often, Congressman, which is about from whence comes the power and the obligation of Congress to do this, which is from the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments to the Constitution. So I, I heard Mitch Romney say yesterday, this is a federal takeover. Uh, of the elections. And I thought, well, what on earth are you talking about? Once again, the framers of the Civil War amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments passed after the Civil War, had in their mind and their intention uh, that Black people would be full citizens of this country. Some of that was effectuated through obviously the 13th Amendment ending slavery, the 14th Amendment, the first line ensuring birthright citizenship for both formerly enslaved people, but also free people whose citizenship had been taken by the Dred Scott decision and, and promising equal protection of the laws. And in section four, even setting up a whole regime to punish Southern states that wouldn't allow black men to vote. And then in section five of the 14th amendment saying the power to enforce these guarantees is given to Congress. Congress can make laws to enforce the guarantees in the 14th Amendment. Then the 15th Amendment, which says you can't be denied the right to vote on account of your race. Again, now section two enforcement clause, Congress shall have the power to make laws to enforce, again, the guarantees of the provisions. So if you have a problem, you have a problem with the Voting Rights Act and a preclearance regime that involves the federal government. You have a problem not with the Democrats. You don't have a problem with the, with the John Lewis Act you don't even have a problem with the Voting Rights Act. You have a problem with the Constitution. You have a problem with the 14th and 15th Amendments and the framers' intent to make it Congress's obligation. And why did the framers do that? Because they also knew what the states would do. 
That's why we get to the 14th and 15th Amendments and we suddenly get the language, no state shall. The whole point of it was to protect Black people against the states. And so when we hear Congress then abdicating its responsibility and saying, hands off, that should be left to the states, they are directly contravening the language of the 14th and 15th Amendments, the intention and the directive of the framers of those amendments that it should be Congress's job to ensure the equal protection of Black people and to protect Black people from voting discrimination. It's astonishing to me that uh, this Congress is prepared to walk away from that obligation and that I can hear these senators today, these Republican senators, somehow suggesting that, they, that this is optional when in fact it's very clear in the language of the constitutional amendments. Absolutely, and I'm glad you brought up Senator Romney. Uh, I, uh, I listened to him over the weekend. Uh, I believe it was maybe Sunday, and he talked about um, it's still the law of the land. The, uh, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, still the law of the land. Yes, it is still the law of the land. And that's not what we're arguing. Uh, we are arguing about these two Supreme Court decisions, reinterpretation of the law of the land. Right. And now uh, we've got to get Congress uh, to once again address these two issues. So it, it's amazing to me uh, to listen to these people uh, talk as if uh, everything is fine because the law is still on the books. We're guided by the court's interpretation of the laws, not what's on the book, but what the court said, what's on the book and what it means. And that's what's got us to where we are today. It's an abdication. Yes. It's an abdication of responsibility. Absolutely. And you know what's so it's interesting? Abdication. You know, you, you mentioned the Constitution, but you know, I, I remember uh, often getting in discussions with my Republican friends and they start running to the Federalist Papers. And so I started a couple of weeks ago taking them to Federalist Paper 59, hmm. uh, dealing with uh, uh, Article 1 and with Alexander Hamilton talking about this whole issue of federal elections. Mm -hmm and making it very clear. And I would ask our listeners to consider this. A lot of states several years ago put on term limits for their state uh, legislators. And they tried to put on term limits for Congress people. And they were prevented from doing that because of Article One and the Federalist Papers, because they were telling the Hamilton, said, no state, it can make law host that govern uh, the federal uh, electorate. And it's very clear. Article that's one, why they were not able to limit. Article 1, Section 4 clearly gives uh, Congress the power to regulate federal elections. And this is another reason why it infuriates me when Romney says this is some kind of power grab or tries to give the impression yeah. Congress is acting outside its authority. That authority is clearly articulated in the Article 1, Section 4 then I've just talked about the 14th and 15th Amendment. It is clear, and that's why I say this is an abdication. This is for political reasons and to hold power, an abdication of the authority given to Congress in the Constitution and the effort to try to paint uh, this, this, this bill as something that is outside their authority. And I wish that more folks in the media would, 
would focus on this and would ask the right questions and ask the right follow-up questions. This is a constitutional moment. Uh, it's nice to just talk about it as a partisan moment, as Republicans and Democrats, but it's a constitutional moment in which there are members of the United States Congress who either don't know what their authority and power is or are abdicating their responsibility to act within that and in that authority and power. Yeah, thank you so much for that. You know, uh, uh, Article 1, Section 4 in and the Federalist Papers are very educational. So I would ask my listeners uh, to just take a little look at that. Don't take our word for it. Uh, just take a look at those two things in the United States Constitution and uh, the Federalist Papers. Now, there's another thing that uh, is going around. Uh, and um, some of my friends over in the Senate side seem to feel that um, a law is not uh, we wouldn't say not valid, but it's not creditable uh, if it's by, uh, unless it's bipartisan. Now, uh, you and I both know the 15th Amendment of the United States Constitution was a single party vote. The, and the only reason giving the blacks the right to vote. And the, and the 14th, you know, was under punishment of not being able to get your state back in the union. I mean, sometimes it just can't happen. That's exactly right. A single party vote. So both the 14th Amendment, uh, due process, equal protection of the law, 15th Amendment, giving the former slaves the right to vote, uh, both of them were straight party votes. They were not bipartisan. And so we need to tell our listeners, uh, you don't have to have uh, bipartisan legislation in order for it uh, to be valid. But you, know, but, you, but, you know, but you know, Congressman, I would even say more than that. I, I find this argument about it being bipartisan, I mean, it's a bit of smoke and mirrors, but it also is an effort to deflect from the crisis of this moment. Uh, and we are in a democratic crisis. We, we, we watched an effort by the president of the United States to overturn an election. 147 members of your house, Republican members of your house voted to overturn the election. Only six Republican senators were willing to vote for a an investigation of January 6th. Uh, we're in a very, very serious moment in this democracy. And it is unfortunate that one party has chosen to knuckle under uh, to this party line and, and has uh, provided aid and comfort to the former president and his activities that imperil the integrity of our democracy. But that is the moment that we are in. And we are not going to get out of it with bromides about bipartisanship and you know, Senator Sinatra's speech about we should all work together. Of course, who doesn't believe we should all work together? I absolutely believe you should work together. Unfortunately, we cannot. As I just said, it's not possible. And so if it's not possible, does that mean we allow the democracy to perish? Or does that mean that we go forward, those who are prepared and willing to do so, and can save the democracy or at least hold it until we can um, employ measures that will you know, reinvigorate and strengthen the electorate and help people see the abyss that we are uh, 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 you know, standing on. Um, so that, that's the part that disturbs me about it. It's, it's, a, it's almost a giving a backhand to the seriousness of this moment. We watched thousands of people attack the United States Capitol and hunt down members of Congress in an effort to overturn an election. We are in a serious moment and I don't wanna be palmed off with these silly, conversations about why can't we all just get along and we need to do things in a bipartisan way. Yes, we do need to do things in a bipartisan way. 
But that means that the other side also has to move off of these uh, cowardly positions that imperil our, our democracy. That is so true. And I'm glad you went there because that's a tr tremendous transition uh, to a point I would like us to make here today. Um, and that is this. Years ago, you may be uh, too young to remember this, but I remember when Georgia made a decision to require a 50% plus one runoff requirement for their general elections. They came to the conclusion that uh, too many um, uh, black people, just to be fat, were registering to vote and uh, had started to vote. And so they said, and don't take my word for it, look it up and you see in the record that the gentleman who put up the requirement, he made it very clear that he was doing that in order to uh, dilute the impact of black voters. So rather than uh, having somebody run uh, from the Democratic Party and somebody from the Republican Party, and maybe somebody as an independent side, I'm going to run uh, for, uh, let's just say, the United States Senator. And then uh, when I'm going to get, say, 39% of the vote, and the other two split, uh, the, what's that left, 61%? They split that up evenly. The guy with 39% would get elected. So this side, well, we are we we we, we going to require that you get 50% plus one. And the guy said, the reason I'm doing this because it will force if a black person get 39%, it will force them to have to go uh, head to head uh, with the white candidate, uh, and therefore we'll win. Well, let's fast forward to 2021. And well, let's go to 2020. In 2020, November. David Perdue, running for re-election mm -hmm. to the United States Senate, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. was challenged by a Jewish guy named Osof. David Perdue got 49.7 or 8%, just 0.3% short of the 50%. Therefore, he was forced into a runoff which he lost. So these laws that look like they're just there to get after black people today, I'm saying to all my listeners, and I have quite a few uh, non-black listeners, this ain't just about black people. The same law that they are trying to make for black people today will come and get you later. Well, that's you got the thing. David Perdue. That's the thing. I mean, I have tried to, to you know, explain to people that, look, I'm a civil rights lawyer. So um, I am always pushing to make our democracy fairer for people who are marginalized. Um, but one thing I'm very clear about is that I want to live in a democracy. It may be flawed, but I want to live in a democracy. And I've tried to help people understand that civil rights work is democracy work that what they come at our community with 
It's basically what they're workshopping for the larger community. Absolutely. You know, this is, we are the, we are, you know, what is uh, Lonnie Guineer, the great voting rights attorney and scholar used to say, miners canary, right? Yeah, absolutely. They're it out on us and then they maximize it. And, and that's part of what we're seeing. Look at the claim of voter fraud. This has been circling around for 20 years and has been used to try to tighten the screws around voter purges and absentee voting and all kinds of stuff for 20 years targeted at black voters. In the hands of President Trump, it became a wholesale right, uh, claim that elections that he doesn't win are fraudulent. And now we have tens of millions of people who can't even discern what is real from what is unreal when it comes to elections. And we have members of Congress who are unwilling to say, even though they know the truth, that Joe Biden is the legitimately elected president. And this is why people have to get concerned about civil rights work. It's not just about getting stuff for black people in case that's what you think it is. It is doing the hard democracy work of making this country live up to the words that are in the constitution and in our statutes. It's making equal protection, not just words in the 14th amendment, but true in the lives of ordinary people. And that's what the work is. And it opens it up for all of us. When LDF started doing our work around employment discrimination, it opened up employment opportunities for women. As a matter of fact, you know, I'm, one of the things I'm always proudest of is LDF in the Supreme Court won the case in 1971, Phillips versus Martin Marietta. Bill Robinson argued the case. And we won that case. And you know what that case was about? It was a case involving Martin Marietta in Georgia that had a they would not hire women for jobs if they had preschool age children. And we represented Ida Phillips, a white woman, a white woman in challenging and successfully challenging that. So if you are a white woman walking around corporate America who has young children, that was LDF that opened that door. Absolutely. Civil rights work is democracy work. Absolutely. I'm hoping that people can see how, um, you know, they were let in through the crack and, and people paid no attention because, oh, it's happening down in the South. Oh, it's happening to those black people. P people didn't pay attention to voter suppression. Now, when it's come to imperil the in integrity of the entire democracy, I hope people can see that it is important to begin to, to engage this stuff when it's happening to our communities as well, because it is a threat to our entire democracy, not just to any one group of people. Well, thank you so much for pointing that out. Uh, I remember that case, but I really, really, I don't know if I've ever really focused on the fact that that was LDF's case. Um, but thank you so much for pointing that out. I, I think it's important for people, as you said, to realize uh, that um, these issues that they tend to uh, direct or target us with, um, they are just, uh, it's gonna apply to everybody uh, going forward. Uh, David Perdue will be sitting in the Senate right now, uh, but for the <laughs> fact that Georgia passed a law mm -hmm. to keep Warnock from ever getting elected. <laughs> and uh, not only uh, did Georgia end up electing a black senator and the first Jewish senator, they defied everything they were trying to do with that law. I had, I had uh, not so, thought about that. Fascinating. I'm sorry? I had not thought about that. Fascinating. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember, you know, I was 
back in the so-called young Democrats back then. And so I remember one of our heroes was running for the Senate and uh, who uh, Weiss Fowler, uh, who they were trying to, uh, uh, to stop and they stopped him. Uh, uh, he lost the runoff, uh, but um, I, I remember it very well. I want to thank you for being here today. And I, 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 I know that uh, we could talk about these forever. I don't like to uh, test my listeners too strenuously. So I try to do about 30 minutes and, uh, and hope they'll come back for the next podcast. But would there be anything you would like to just leave the listeners with today? Um, I think that um, uh, your you aren't going to tell us what your plans are going forward. I know that, but uh, whatever you would like us to know uh, as you as we close out this yeah, listen, listen, keep the faith and keep fighting. Um, you know, we don't have a choice but to keep fighting and to not give up and to show up. And um, I don't, you know, people ask me all the time, how do you stay encouraged? And I have my days too, uh, where I'm, you know, annoyed and pissed off and and concerned and um, wondering how we're gonna find our way out. Uh, that's normal. Um, but I, I don't have any doubt about what the end's gonna be. I'm not saying it's gonna be a smooth path to the end, um, but I truly believe it. And, um, and that's what allows me to continue to have the fortitude to continue the work. And even though I won't be at the Legal Defense Fund, I will be continuing the work any way I can. I will continue speaking. I will I will continue engaging. I will continue writing, um, and I will you know think about what is the best way in the next chapter of my life for me to contribute to this work. I feel so privileged to do this. Is my dream from the time I was a girl, and um, and so I have thrown everything I have into it. I do think I need to pull back for a second, and then think through what's the next chapter and how best I can do it. And I'm I hope to call on you, Congressman, for your sage council uh, on, on what's needed and how I can uh, use what, what, you know, what knowledge I have and what experience I have to continue to try to really move this country forward for our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, for ourselves, um, and to make good on the struggles of those who came before us. So thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I look forward uh, to continuing, uh, not just working with you, but I really look forward to read in your writings. I hope you so will much. keep writing. I will, uh, I will. Uh, let me say to my listeners, I, I want you to think a little bit about the history of what we call the Civil Rights Act. I want all of you to remember that in 1964, when that act was first introduced, um, Congress was being a bit recalcitrant. Lyndon Johnson was having a hard time getting the votes he needed. In order to get the votes, they took voting out of it. They took housing out of it. In fact, when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed, it only outlawed discrimination in employment in the private sector and didn't have voting. That was 64. We got voting in 65. We got fair housing in 68. And we got the whole thing applied, the Civil Rights Act 
applied to the public sector in 1972. So over an eight year period, we got a pretty big and comprehensive bit of legislation. We're not gonna give up if we lose this vote today. We are uh, doing this podcast, taping this podcast as the Senate is debating. And the end result may be uh, predictable, but I think there's something else that should be predictable. We are not giving up. As John Lewis here, he would say, we're not going to that. We are moving forward. And we are going to continue this pursuit towards a more perfect union. And I want to thank uh, the director, council for being with us today, Sherilyn, who has been a great partner uh, in this effort. And I know she will continue to be wherever she goes. And I'll thank all of you for listening today. This has been another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.